again, as I already said, this might be the, one of the toughest chapters to teach in the Bible. I've been studying for a couple weeks, refreshing and so forth. And uh, really what we get into tonight is a, 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 a lot of history that was prophesied uh, as Daniel had this vision, and then it seems it's the angel Gabriel, it's an angel, it seems like it's Gabriel that lays out incredible detail of what would happen in the near future after Daniel. It covers the kingdom of Persia into Alexander the Great, and then it goes into great detail between the king of the north and the king of the south, uh, two of the kingdoms that came out of Alexander's Reign And it finally then moves to a guy we've been talking about, Antiochus Epiphanes. And there's about 15 verses on him in his attempt to really snuff out uh, the Word of God and to snuff out the promise of the coming Messiah. And it's where we see that first abomination of desolation there in the temple. And we know that all of that really is a foreshadow of the Antichrist who is soon to come here on the earth. From about 35 to the end of the chapter, there's a time leap, and it really moves to the time of the last days and the Antichrist. And again, in the time of about verse 20, verse 18 or so to verse 35, it's Antiochus Epiphanes. And there's a lot of things that we can read about him that, again, foreshadows the Antichrist. So, again, a lot of moving parts here. We're going to look at a lot of different kings of the north and kings of the south cover about a period of 100 years of those guys or so. And so really what I did tonight to really try to help you, uh, because this, this, is, this is a challenge here, um, I gave you all of my notes. So you got 10 pages of notes. Again, I usually don't have that many. But what I really am hoping is that people don't leave here uh, confused but with more clarity. And in some of these verses, I'm actually just going to read kind of the historical summary of you know what what was prophesied and then how it was fulfilled from there on some of them i'll go into more detail and a teaching but what you should be able to do is take this home and then if you want to you know what go over it again you can do that there's all the verses here and then again right behind um your announcements i got a chart for you guys that really breaks down all the various kings and the verses here on the side which makes it a real simple follow along chart and for some of you guys you know what it, it, it might even be better just to kind of listen and follow on that chart i know some people are more visual uh and do encourage you though you know if at any point you're like okay where are we what are you talking about here just like hang in there and and you know clarity will come maybe in the next verse or next week <laughs> and uh you know hang through and i i really don't like reading paragraphs up here i don't like doing that but I'm going to have to do that in some of these cases because it's just going to enable me to really summarize the verse very quickly. Because if I start talking, sometimes I have a tendency to go to, into too much detail. And I don't want to do that because there's some major points here that we want to hit on. And I don't want to lose time, which I'm doing right now in my rambling and setting all this up. So listen, let's start here by reading Daniel 10. Verse 20 and 21, we looked at those last week, but we want to transition in. And then the first verse of Daniel 11, and, and we'll do a little recapping of what happened in the previous chapter, kind of set, again, a, 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 an order of what we're going to look at. And then in verse 1, we see an amazing picture of an angel of God 
uh, being sent by God, directing a pagan king's heart. And I think there's a lot of encouragement for that uh, in, in that for us even today, that the Lord directs the hearts of kings. So notice here, Daniel 10, verse 20. Um, it says, then he said, do you know why I've come to you? And this is the angel speaking to Daniel. And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. I remember that was a picture of the spiritual warfare. These aren't men that are being referred to, but these are principalities being referred to that this angel had to fight against to answer Daniel's prayer and bring this revelation to him of great detail. Verse 21, he says, but I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. And then verse 1, it says, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Again, this is the angel speaking. And so remember we saw in chapter 10, Daniel had been given a vision of, of a time to come where there would be an extended period of wars. And he saw that his people, Israel, would be in the middle of these things. Really, he saw from the days of Cyrus that he was in and Darius that he was in all the way again through Antiochus Epiphanes and then a flash forward to the end of the age in Antichrist. And he was just completely overwhelmed of what he saw. I mean, we've been reading these things and it's very powerful and weighty. He saw those things and remember we saw that it moved him into a place of mourning, a place of fasting, a place of, you know what, not anointing himself and a place of just really waiting on the Lord. And then finally, 21 days later, this angel, it seems that it's Gabriel, came to him with this answer. And he said, from the day you started praying, your prayer was heard, and I was sent. And as we just touched on, he said, the prince of Persia withstood me. And many believe the prince of Persia, that principality, is actually Satan himself. We don't know that for sure, but there's a lot of evidence towards that. And he withstood him, and yet, again, he was able to finally get through in the heavenlies to give him this answer. And he says, as I leave here, uh, you know, the prince of Greece is coming as well, another principality. And he speaks of Michael, the archangel, who we saw last week is the, the you know, the, the, the angel or, or the, you know, the, if you want to call it the angelic principality over Israel. So a lot is unfolded. And uh, we saw a lot of insights last week into prayer and spiritual warfare and so forth. Now, again, we see the angel begin to break all these things down. And he says, I'll tell you what's noted in the scripture of truth. And again, this chapter is so amazing. It really is a, such a powerful chapter that shows scripture is the truth. Because we're going to see here in verse 2 down through about 35, they say over 130 prophecies are fulfilled. Now, I'm not going to number all of them. I can't do that. Uh, some say up to 135 prophecies were fulfilled in this passage. And I'll tell you, Billy, if, if you want to see one of the things that separates God's word from all other books, it's fulfilled prophecy. In fact, there's so many prophecies fulfilled here that many secular critics uh, and historians with zero evidence at all have said there's no way that Daniel could have wrote this. Their only evidence is that it all was fulfilled. And they say that's impossible. So he couldn't have written it before. But here's the truth. Our God knows the end from the beginning. Our God, listen, he's never rattled by any of these things. 
the other big problem that they have is this. There's a man named Jesus Christ. Do you know him tonight? Guess what? He confirms the book of Daniel. <laughs> and so these critics, with no evidence whatsoever, say there's no way that he could have wrote it. So they say there's two Daniels. And they teach this in their even polluted Bible colleges and so forth. And yet Jesus affirmed Daniel and Jesus affirmed the prophecies of Daniel because remember we saw there in Matthew 24 when he's explaining what we the signs of, of his coming and the end of the age he points them back to Daniel you need to understand what Daniel talked about you need to understand about the abomination of desolation which Daniel talks about in chapter 9 and Daniel also talks about when are you ready for it chapter 11 that we're in here tonight now the chapter 11 one again, would still be in the future before Daniel. It's in the past now. Because again, it happened in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes before Christ came and so forth. But it's going to happen again. So I don't know about you guys, but when Jesus affirms something, that's good enough for me. Like uh, six-day creation, like uh, Noah, the story of Jonah, Daniel, the prophets and so forth. I take the word of Jesus over any foolish man with a hard heart versus God who stands on no evidence at all and says, it can't be. Now, I'm going to go with Jesus every single time. Now, again, the prophecies that were fulfilled, a quick overview, it was start in the days of where Daniel is now with the king of Persia and four other kings that would come after him. There would be some after those four kings, and it's pretty amazing who one of these kings uh, is. You're familiar with them. We'll get to that in a second. And then it moves from, in verse 3 and 4, Alexander the Great, who we've already talked about, the goat who would overthrow the bear as Greece would overthrow the Medo-Persian Empire. Then, again, his four predecessors are those who the kingdom was broken up to. And then in verse 5 through 20, again, we get great detail of the king of the north in Syria and the king of the south in Egypt. And if you guys are familiar at all with the map, if you've ever gone to Israel, you know this. What's in the middle of Syria and Egypt? Does anyone know? It's a little country. That's right, named Israel. And these two countries would war for over 100 years, crossing over and over again over Israel, stuck in the middle, being trampled upon and so forth by these nations over and over and over. And I'll tell you, you know what? I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like Israel in a world where, praise God, our God sees us through, but do you ever feel trampled from both sides? You know, even dueling forces in this world that both hate God trying to get ahead in this life. And so I think in that, as you have that in mind, we can get a little application because despite all that goes on and all the trampling and all the looting of the temple and so forth, guess what? God's people prevail and God sees them through. And that's going to be the case for those that know Jesus every single time. Do you know the Lord? Can you say amen to that? Then listen, receive this, 2 Corinthians 4.8. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. So praise God tonight, again, you might be hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, but the Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to see you through. That's who our God is. So this sets this up a bit, and then notice verse 11. Again, the angel is talking 
to Daniel, and he begins to break down this vision in great detail. And so he says, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And so he's saying when Darius and Cyrus, you remember these co-kings, had thrown over Belshazzar and Babylon, that in that time, that this angel of the Lord, he stood up and he confirmed and he strengthened a pagan king. I mean, this is an amazing thing. Darius is not a believer. We know he would get a reverence for God when he saw Daniel delivered from the lion's den. But these men weren't worshipers of God. But God had given a prophetic word that the Medo-Persian Empire would overthrow the Babylonian Empire. And guess what? When God gives his word, it's going to happen. And there's times when he uses non-believers and pagans and so forth to bring forth his will. And in this case, he did that. So he sent an angel to strengthen, to confirm Darius, no doubt Cyrus as well, to first of all bring that victory, also no doubt to stand up against the demonic forces, not wanting or trying to prevent that from happening, because Satan's always trying to prove God a liar. He always spells in that, but no doubt wanting to keep that from coming about and strengthening him again to do the will of God. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Can we say amen to that tonight? And listen, that's true today. That's true in the midst of all the things going on in the world today. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. Now, oftentimes, the Lord allows the king's heart to to be a reflection of the people that he oversees. And a lot of times, bad things come out of that. But God hears the prayers of his people, doesn't he? And this is why we got a call to pray for our king, our president, and so forth. To pray, again, that evil intent would be squashed. To pray there'd be a softening of the heart. To pray like I pray every day. Lord, let the fear of God fall on them like a rock, you know. That they would fall on their face and cry out to God. So again, the king was strengthened by this angel of the Lord to bring forth that victory against Babylon. For Darius, or, or Darius himself, remember, to give favor to Daniel in the account of the lion's den remember he was tricked into passing a law that people could only pray to him for a month and daniel prayed anyway and then the king was grieved because he saw that daniel was set up and as he was getting thrown to the lion's den darius's heart was softened and he you know it was worried about daniel then when daniel was saved remember he gave praise to our god what an amazing thing and then also darius would have to agree with cyrus in the decree about allowing the jews to go back in to rebuild the temple really in many ways of freeing them and cyrus himself is an incredible fulfillment of prophecy we've looked at this i won't read the verses but on isaiah 44 28 about 150 years before cyrus was born he was named by name and it said that he would you know what uh, allow the the jews to go back to jerusalem to rebuild it before they were in captivity And then as they were going into captivity, Jeremiah prophesied that after 70 years in Babylon, they would be allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And this is where he said in verse 11, I know the thoughts I think think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and hope. You're about to go into captivity. You're about to go through a trial. Maybe tonight you're in a trial. Maybe tonight you're in the midst of affliction. Well, this is God's heart towards his people. Even in the midst of this, he says, know this, my thoughts towards you 
are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and hope. And you need to receive that tonight as a follower of the Lord. And then, of course, in Ezra 1.1, we see where Cyrus, the king of Persia, absolutely issued that decree for them to go back to rebuild the temple to be able to go back to Jerusalem. And Darius had to be in cahoots with them. They had to be in agreement. And so the Lord sent this angel to stand him up, no doubt to direct his heart and to bring about the will of God. The will of God is always going to prevail. And again, this is the scripture of truth. It's being declared by God Almighty, who notice Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Notice here, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasures. His word is true. As these things were prophesied, again, they came about to the most minute detail. These things happen. And again, in Daniel, in the past chapters we looked at, at the end of this chapter, chapter 12, it's prophecy about what is going to happen. And I'll tell you, just as these things were prophesied and they did happen, the things that are prophesied that will happen, guess what's going to happen? They're going to happen. And so we don't want to fall into that trap of 2 Peter 3.3. Know this, the scoffers will come the last days, walking according to their lust. Doing what? Mocking Bible prophecy. And you see a ton of that nowadays. You don't just see it in the world. You see it in a lot of what is called Christendom. A mocking of end times things. A mocking of the rapture of the church. A mocking of the second coming and so forth. That usually comes from a heart of people that are wanting to be about the kingdom of man. That really don't have interest in the kingdom of God. Let that not be us. Now notice verse 2. He says, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So again, Cyrus is in uh, power now. Darius is in power as well with them. And he says, After them, there's going to be four rulers that come. There would be some after them as well. But he points out these ones specifically specifically and if i can't say specifically how am i going to say these guys names because not all of them are easy to pronounce so bear with me he talks about cambius this is cyrus's son uh 530 bc to 522 bc i'm not going to hit all the dates you can read them a lot of people don't care about that that after him would be smyrtus uh it's cambius's brother and then there would be another Darius, Darius I the Great. You know, there's the first Darius, and the next guy comes and says, no, I'm Darius the Great. That's just Darius, I'm the Great Guy, and so forth. And then after him, the next king would be Xerxes. And this is someone that you're familiar with. He goes by the name of Asherus in what? In the book of Esther. And he's prophesied about here. He'd be far richer than the others, and by his strength through riches, he would stir up all against the realm of Greece. Now, we know what happens in the book of Esther. Remember, there's a big party, and he calls for his wife to come dance for his buddies, which is just weird. This is a weird dude right here. Like, who does that? He was a weirdo. And she's like, I'm not going to do that. And I'm like, go, girl. I wouldn't do that either. Dude's a weirdo. And then as the guys that are with them say, oh, you need to get rid of her. He gets rid of her. And then it's interesting. It basically indicates he, he knew he blew it. Like, I miss my wife now dummy don't do that and they say we're going to get you a better wife 
Remember the decree went out to search for all the beautiful virgins, and we know that Esther is chosen. We know they sent through her, she goes through a year of beautification. I don't know what that was like. But I'm like nothing's new underneath the sun, right? And then finally, you know what? She she gets introduced to the king. She gets favor. We know that in the meantime, there's a guy named Haman that's plotting against the Jews. Mordecai, her uncle, won't bend a knee to him. He hates Mordecai. Um, and and he, he gets this plot to kill all the Jews. And so Mordecai says to Esther, hey, you're here for a time such as this. So you need to step it up. Don't let someone else come, you know, because someone else will. And we know how the account goes. You know, she goes humbly to the king and so forth, throws a couple parties while Haman is plotting to destroy the Jews and Mordecai and she gets favor uh Haman gets exposed Haman gets hung and we read about again Mordecai and Esther defending the Jews them getting a victory and then them getting moved into a place of power not just you know at a a side piece over here or you know just a you know this is my beautiful wife you know it but her having influence as well as Mordecai and you can read about that I got all of Esther 10 for you guys in your notes which is three verses and it talks about Xerxes or Hershey's you know imposing tribute on the land and it talks about his power and his might and that's a fulfillment of prophecy it's a fulfillment of prophecy that we read about here in Daniel Daniel prophesied that about that before it came about because you got the book of Ezra in chronological order and then you got Esther then later you got Nehemiah because Xerxes would you know have another son as Xerxes after him who would issue the decree to rebuild the city so again hopefully that's not overload we looked at some of this stuff if it is take a deep breath but we know that Xerxes himself again he would he history tells us he would accumulate an army of two and a half million soldiers and we know that he would go and he would burn Athens to the ground it would be an incredibly bloody war. Their own army would be decimated in it, but they would get the victory. And then for the next 150 years, um, listen, there were people that wanted revenge against them. They wanted revenge. And it would stir up, again, what would, you know what, come next in some of the things we're going to look at here. Now notice here verse 3. Again, those are the Medo-Persian kings. There, there's an anger against them. And then down the road, what would happen? A guy, like, a guy named Alexander the Great, the Greek, would come into power. So notice verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his own will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity or his children, nor according to his dominion with which he had ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides thee. So again, Xerxes, it, it, you know, it decimates everybody. For 150 years, they're bitter. They're wanting to overthrow the Persians. And then this young man named Alexander, who again, he actually lived up to his title, the great, according to man's viewpoint. He would muster up a small army and he would be very, uh, you know, use great tactics to be able to go in and overthrow these massive Persian armies. They would, they would lure their ships out of the deep waters into the shallow waters where they couldn't maneuver. This guy was one of the greatest tacticians of war ever in the history of the world. And they say in about four years, he overthrew the Persian Empire. 
uh, it, you know, it, it, miraculously, but according to Scripture. And by the time he was 33 years old, he had pretty much overthrown the known world and it put him in a place of sorrow. Why? He said, because I got nowhere else that I can, I've taken it all over. We know soon after that, he would die. History tells us on his 33rd birthday. And he would die again in sorrow and with no children. Again, according to scripture, his kingdom would be divided up, but not among his posterity or amongst his children. He didn't have any kids. He didn't have time for kids. He was out, you know what? conquering and so we had four generals who the kingdom was divided up amongst interesting something we see over and over and again is they did as they willed and and they did but did they really you'll see this come up you know they just did what they wanted to do and i know the model of satanism is do as thou wilt do what's right in your own eyes which many men do bulk of people do they do that, but do they really do that? Because, listen, God's in control. Kind of one of those things that, you know what, we should think about and so forth. Because if God works all things for good for those that love Him and are called according to His purposes, that means even those wanting to do as they, as they will, you know what, God is even using that for His glory in a roundabout way. And it's going to be awesome when we get to glory and see all that unfolds. We don't got time to explore that tonight because I don't know how that works, but I know that it works. Now, in verse 5 through 20... It goes into great detail between the king of the north and the king of the south. There was also a king of the east and a king of the west. We're not even going to get into those guys because there's enough people to look at here. The king of the north would be in Syria. The king of the south would be in Egypt. What's right in the middle? Israel. So notice verse 5. Also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes. And he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So Ptolemy... Sotar was one of Alexander's generals who took over the south Egypt. And then one of his own generals, again, one of his own princes, Seleucus, uh, was eventually raised up to take over the north. And again, what's in the middle? Israel. And in all this, again, we see an attack to try to destroy what? Israel. Over and over again, eventually we'll get to Antiochus Epiphanes, this type of Antichrist. And when the Antichrist comes on the scene of the world, what's he going to try to do? Destroy Israel. Why did they do it back then? To try to keep the promise of the Messiah who came from Israel. Why is Satan still about that today? To try to, again, keep the coming of the Lord or try to prove God a liar. And if God's a liar, we have no Savior. But again, God's word always prevails. Is Jesus your Lord tonight? Can you say amen to that? You are on the winning side. You absolutely are. Now notice verse 6. At the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not remain in the power of her authority, and neither he, or, uh, neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up, and those, uh, and those who brought her with her who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times." So you got a couple kings here, Ptolemy in the south, Seleucid in the north, who is Antiochus II, Antiochus Epiphanes is the fourth. He he was to marry Bernice. (laughs) Let me just read this. (laughs) This is tough. 
I've been talking about this. I, I know this, but okay, he was he was to marry Bernice, uh, the the king of the 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 king of the South's daughter. Problem is, he already had a wife. <laughs> her name was Laodice. Have you heard of Laodicea? Named after her. Uh, so he divorced her to marry the king of the South's daughter, Bernice. So it's like, bye-bye, I'm going to marry Bernice. But guess what? She didn't take kindly to that. So what did she do? She had Bernice and her infant son assassin, and then her ex-husband poisoned and killed. That's prophesied in the Bible. <laughs> then she ruled until her own son, Seleucus II, was old enough to take hold of the empire. I got some notes here. I'm not going to touch on this. I just basically put on the notes, beware of Seleucid's actions. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. You divorce your, divorce your wife for this, he reaped what he sowed. It cost him his life. And then on top of that, don't imi- imitate um, uh, Bernice, or, or should, that should say Leo, Leodice. See, you got my notes here. I would catch that up here, and you got my mistake right here. Who repaid evil for evil? We don't want to do that. She did that, and guess what? All these people throughout this are plotting and scheming and scamming, and none of them get ahead. You know, they, 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 they gain a small kingdom for a time, then they die, and they got to face the living God. And can you imagine giving account for all this selfishness and brutality and all these deaths and so forth? It's really quite disgusting. Now, notice verse 7. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. So basically, um, Bernice, who was killed, had a brother who rose up, uh, and he avenged, oh man, am I I missing these two up? Ptolemy III (laughs) organized a campaign to avenge the murder of his sister, Laodice, sorry. Bernice is the one that killed them. This is tough stuff up here, a lot of names and so forth. And so he captured uh, Antioch, marched all the way to uh, Bactria, and defeated the Seleucid navy, uh, recapturing the former conquest of his father in Asia Minor. So again, he avenges his sister. These guys wore back and forth, back and forth. Verse 8. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north, Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So again, um, Ptolemy III, in the midst of this back and forth, he went and he took back the gods that had been stolen by the son of Cyrus all those years earlier, a couple hundred years earlier, because again, the, the Persians had went and looted all those temples that were basically also like the city's bank. And so he went and got all his gods back. That's a problem when you've got to steal your gods back. 2,500 uh, 2, of them, they say, because, listen, things made by, man, by man's hands aren't gods at all. We're actually going to talk about this Sunday there in Acts 19 when Paul had turned the idol world upside down in Ephesus that sparked that revival teaching that listen these aren't gods there's a living God who sent his son to die for you he's the one that you should worship so these two kings of the north and south eventually made a treaty and the king of the south returned back home now again you got notes here so 
If, if I lose you at any time, you can go back and read through them. We're, 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 getting, we're making some progress here, though. This is a tough chapter. But praise God, all this stuff happened as the Bible said that it would happen to the most minute detail. It's insane. I'm not even touching on all the details. I'll have the time to. I, I, I don't have the, the desire to either. This is, this is fascinating but painful at the same time. You know, it's like going to the dentist or something. Verse 10, he says, However, his son shall stir up and assemble a multitude of great for- of, of forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his own for- fortress and stir up strife. Seleucus II, this is the north, was succeeded by his son, Seleucus III, who only lived three years before being followed by his younger brother, Antiochus III, another Antiochus the Great. He'd be the father of Antiochus Epiphanes, which we'll get to soon. Antiochus III set out on a battle quest, marching to the borders of Egypt, where he was met by Ptolemy IV. Again, back and forth, back and forth with Israel in the middle, fulfilling prophecy down to the most, again, small detail. Verse 11, and the king of south shall be moved with rage. These guys got upset when they didn't get their way. You know anyone like that? I don't got my way. I'm full of rage. These guys are pathetic, really. And go out and fight with them, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. So Antiochus III from the north defeated Ptolemy IV in the battle of Raphia, 218 B.C. So we're getting closer to the time of the Lord. Antiochus III had to give up Israel and Phoenicia to Egypt. And then over the next 15 years, Antioch III was busy fighting elsewhere. All his conquests took him all the way to the Caspian Sea in the north and in the Indus River in the east. Verse 13. For the king of the north will return and muster a greater than the former and shall certainly come at at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. So Antiochus III, after 15 years, he took up arms once again against Egypt and he took Gaza, or Gaza, which is there, you know, in, in southern Israel where the Philistines are from. Again, back of, these guys just never stop. Back and forth wanting to dominate and take one another over. Verse 14, now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. And then notice, there's an address here of the Israelites, Daniel's people. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So Israel is in the middle. They're getting tired of this. And they're like, we need to pick a side here. We're tired of getting marching on, marched on. So they basically decide to side with the king of the north to try to see them defeat the king of the south in hopes that, you know, we could be left alone. In the Valley of Armageddon, where we know the last battle of, 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 of this dispensation will happen at the coming of the Lord, more wars have been fought in that valley than any other place on the face of the entire planet in that valley. And a lot of it is because of this. Again, it's the center of the world between Asia, Europe, and Africa. So basically a pro-Seleucid party rose up in Jerusalem, but they, as they sided with them, they got put down because the Egyptians came up and won the next battle and then pushed basically Israel all the way north to a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is a fascinating, fascinating place to go if you ever go to Israel. It, it's where Jesus took his disciples and said, who do men say that I am? 
And it's interesting, there's a place there called the gates of hell. There's a temple of Pan there. And it's where Jesus said, and it's all on a giant rock where the Lord said to Peter, you're a pebble, I'm a rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And guess what? All that stuff's there. It's in the far north of Israel. They got drove up that far. You know what their mistake was? Instead of having a pro-Seleucid party, they needed a pro-Jesus party. Because think about it, they're in the middle of all this, and instead of them really crying out and cleaving to God, they said, let's find a political figure that we can align ourselves with. Don't make that mistake. Let's pray for these political leaders, but make sure you align yourself first and foremost with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I'm not hearing any of these guys talking about people repenting and coming to Christ. If, if, they, if they are, I'm not hearing it. Maybe there's a few here or there. We need to be aligned with the Lord Jesus. I want to be part of the Jesus party. First and foremost, verse 15, it says, So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him, even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. So Antiochus III counterattacked. And is this a continual back and forth. General Scopus, he's from the south, reiterated or retreated to Sidon and found himself under siege at that city by, Seleucid, by the Seleucid king finally losing the city to him. So a siege mound is where outside the city wall, they just start bringing in dirt. And these walls were tall and wide. And so they just said, we're going to keep bringing in dirt. And finally, they made a ramp high enough to be able to go in and invade the city. And as I just read that, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about our lives. Let's make sure we're not allowing dirt to pile up to the point where the enemy just has an inlet to come in and get a stronghold in our life. Because I, you know what, when I think about dirt, I think about sin. Keep short accounts with the Lord. Don't let the enemy pile that up to get a stronghold like talked about there in Ephesians chapter 4. Maybe tonight you're letting things pile up. But listen, keep short accounts with them. Bring that before the Lord. Let the Lord see you through your struggle. Confess those sins before Him. He'll be faithful and just to forgive you of sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now notice verse 16. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction of power. So Antiochus III from the north moved southward into Israel, and then he took Jerusalem in 198 B.C. So it's almost like when Israel decided to trust in the north versus the Lord, it opened up a door for them to begin to be taken captive and i'll tell you when the lord's not first and you're putting your hope in him and you start putting your hope in men and again it's not to say that we shouldn't be politically active but that better be secondary to being jesus active because when you get it flip-flop you know what happens the enemy starts getting a bondage in your life and you know what comes with that bondage fear and fear of the future and what's going to happen I know this, my God's on the throne. He's going to go before me. He's going to go before you in Christ Jesus. That's called being liberated. And even in a trial, he's going to work through those things for his good and even for his glory and, and for our good. So again, he went into the glorious land with destruction of power to try to destroy the promise of the coming Messiah. All these guys really, in many ways, are types of antichrist. Verse 17 and he shall set his face to enter with strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. 
thus shall he do, and he shall give the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. Now this is fascinating. Antiochus III in the north, he entered in an alliance with Ptolemy V. He's still a boy. He's the king of the south. The alliance was sealed when Ptolemy from Egypt in the south married Cleopatra, the daughter of Antiochus III in the north. You've been thinking Cleopatra is an Egyptian. She's not. She's a Syrian. But rather than having influence on behalf of her father, Cleopatra fell in love with Ptolemy V there in the south. I said, good for Cleopatra. That's what you're supposed to do, girl. Now, again, the movie Cleopatra, the one we know about, she's five generations later. The one who was Julius Caesar's mistress, who after he was killed, ran off with the general uh, Mark Anthony and all that. Five generations later, but Cleopatra made such an impact, her name became a title. That's pretty awesome. As a lot of these guys, Antiochus, you know, it's a title. Abimelech, it's a title. Pharaoh, it's a title. Cleopatra, who was not even Egyptian, became a title because she really did what was right. You're called to leave and cleave. She said, I'm going to cleave to my husband. And listen, I say that having three daughters, that's God's general plan. That's why you pray they marry a man of God. (laughs) Verse 18. And after this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many But a ruler shall bring reproach against them to an end, and with reproach removed shall turn back on him. Now Antiochus III invaded Trace uh, and was now asked by a league of city-state in uh, in central Greece to aid them in their fight against Macedonia and and the Peloponnesians. Now look at a ruler would come against them. Meanwhile, the Romans threw their weight against Antiochus III, and he was forced forced to withdraw from Greece. So he started to go to the west. The Romans now are rising up. This is part of the earlier prophecies of Daniel and the vision of Nebuchadnezzar. That great beast is starting to rise up. And he'd say, listen, go back to where you're from. You're not going to come out here and start taking power and so forth. Verse 19, it says, Then he shall turn his face towards Uh, the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So, listen, the Romans, uh, under Lucius Cornelius, and you can read the rest of his name, he he basically was known for conquering Asia. His brother was known as conquering Africa. You know, there's my boys, you know, (laughs) their dad. Listen, uh, he followed Antiochus uh, into battle, And though the Romans were outnumbered, they won the war. And part of the settlement was Antiochus III had to give his own son, Antiochus IV, known as Antiochus Epiphanes, the type of Antichrist, he had to give him as a political hostage. So we know this type of Antichrist as a child was a political hostage. And this would no doubt fuel his fire in the rage that he would display once he became king. And it makes me wonder as we begin to see a pattern of prophecy, if when the Antichrist comes on the scene, if he'll be one with a childhood similar to Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the the stuff you get into when you get in the nitty gritty. People have books on the Antichrist. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes was a political hostage. 
you know, will the Antichrist come from something like that? Who knows? But it's, you know, kind of interesting to consider. So from here, uh, Antiochus III, well, notice verse 20, there shall arise in his place one who poses taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not uh, in anger or battle. So after the Romans stopped Antiochus III, they took his son as a hostage, and then they, they put on him a giant fee that he had to pay every year. And the only way he could do that was to raise taxes, something you know we know about. So he sent out a thousand tax collectors. They finally went to rob a temple uh, of Bel in Elimus because, again, the temples were also the banks. And a mob basically rose up and they said, we're tired of being taxed, and they killed them. All politicians should take note of this stuff. Uh, and then in his place would be Seleucus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes' brother, and he would go to the temple there in Israel, and he would basically sack it to, you know what, pay these taxes to Rome. Now, what we begin to see next in verse 21 through 35 is Antiochus Epiphanes, who again is a foreshadow of the Antichrist, because after verse 35, it's a time leap to Antichrist. So notice 21, and in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give honor of royalty but shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom with intrigue. So Seleucus IV, his brother, was murdered. Many believe Antiochus Epiphanes murdered him. And then his son Demetrius was to be next in line for the throne, but Antiochus IV came in and he stole it. And it says he was a vile person. Listen, the Antichrist is going to be a vile person. Extremely unpleasant, morally bad, wicked. He's going to be lawless. And to the Christian, like, that's vile. But you know what that is to the world? The world celebrates that because it's a vile world. And this world is going to get a king that reflects them in the Antichrist. Extremely unpleasant concerning the things of God. Despicable. Morally bad. But this is a morally bad and wicked world. A lawless world. And this is going to be someone who they are greatly intrigued by. Again, he wasn't given honored by royalty. Again, he wasn't in line, but he came in unexpectedly. He came in snake-like and took it. Much like the one, the Antichrist will serve Lucifer. And then it is, he came in peaceably. And we've talked about this. The Antichrist will come in and conquer initially not using war, but using treaties. We read in Revelation, the first white horse, a guy goes on a bow conquering. He does it through peace, through treaties. And we've seen in Daniel 9, we've seen in other places, he's going to come and make a treaty between Israel and her neighbors for seven years, which is going to be the tribulation, the great tribulation. And at the middle, he does the abomination of desolation, which we'll touch on here again in a second. And then there's going to be great persecution on Israel, just like what happened in the day of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, I believe in part the Lord allowed this to happen back then. So when it happens again, the Jews are educated on what's going on. They recognize, we know this, we're familiar with this. The Jews are very familiar with their history. It's amazing how familiar they are because they've had to be survivors. They've survived by the hand of God. A few of them know that. Many don't know that, but eventually they're all going to know that. It also says he seized his kingdom with intrigue. Basically, that means deceitful flatteries. 
The word intrigued there, it means to be smooth. It needs to be slippery. How did Satan get Eve and Adam to fall in the garden? He moved with intrigue. He used deceitful flatteries. If you eat of that tree, you're going to be God. That's a fat lie. That's flattering somebody to move them into destruction or into corruption. Again, we are not ignorant to the schemes of the devil. Beware of flattering tongues. Little, this little side note for life. Praise God for an encouraging tongue. We should encourage one another, but flattering tongues? Flattering tongues are destructive. It's people telling you what you want to hear, what your flesh wants to hear, to gain an advantage to get something from you, not to lead you to the Lord, but to lead you away from Him unto themselves. And I've seen many a flatterer in my days, even in church, who do a whole bunch of, a, a, a whole bunch of damage. I, I, I could give you a hundred stories right now, but I won't do that. Verse 22. But with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, also the prince of the covenant. So Ptolemy the seventh became of age and attempted to regain the land of Israel from the Seleucids or Antiochus Epiphanes at this point, and eventually he was defeated. And then the prince of the covenant or the high priest of Israel got involved. Onias the third was the high priest. He had a brother named Joshua who changed his name to Jason. That's a problem. Because Jason, Jason is a Greek god. He got what was called Hellenized. We talked about this earlier. To be Hellenized was to adopt the religion of Antiochus, which is completely pagan. It's the worship of the body. It's the worship of sex. It's basically the same religion that pretty much the world follows today. He got Hellenized, and he bought the position uh, from Antiochus he went and he offered up money to get that position and Antiochus said yeah you know you want to pay me for that I'll make you the high priest well a few years later he sent uh, a junior priest down to Antiochus with tribute money you know what he did he double crossed Jason he added a little bit more money and then he bought it from Jason and Jason was kicked out again whatever you sow you're going to reap you dig a pit for another you're going to fall into it Now notice verse 23. And after this league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small small number of people. So the Egyptians responded by taking uh, Physcon, the brother of Ptolemy VII, and making him the new king of Egypt. Antiochus Epiphanes, or the fourth, responded by invading Egypt with a state of purpose of placing Ptolemy VII back on the throne to develop an alliance, which was really a deceitful plot by Antiochus to try to overthrow Egypt. And what you see with this guy, he'd make these treaties and stuff, and it would look like it's for the good of his neighbor, but really it was just to try to advance his cause. That's what the Antichrist will do with Israel. That seven-year treaty is just going to be a plot to try to destroy Israel. Verse 24. He shall enter peaceably into the richest places of the province. He shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them plunder, spoil, and riches. He shall devise a plan against the stronghold, but only for a time. Now again, Antiochus Epiphanes, he would use the guise of friendship. He wasn't their friend. To plunder the Egyptian 
the richest Egyptian palaces he could strike. And then you know what he did with the money? He redistributed the wealth to the Egyptian people. Why? To try to gain their favor. He said, if I can gain the favor of the Egyptian people, I can control the Egyptian kings. Does that sound familiar at all today? It's a big push for that right now. We'll give you checks. If you vote for us, we'll give you checks. Don't be concerned that, that we abort babies and, and we, we, we promote, you know, grossly unbiblical morality and so forth. We'll give you checks. Vote for us. I mean, that election in Georgia, those two godless senators who people like Lecrae backed, shame on that guy. You know how they won? You vote for us, you'll get a $2,000 check. No, they're only getting a $1,400 check, liars. <laughs> Just like these guys, ain't nothing new underneath the sun. So he gained their favor by robbing the temples. But notice, listen, it'd only be for a time. What's a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses a soul? Verse 25, he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south, the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for these shall devise a plan against him. So Ptolemy 7 would eventually work out agreement with his brother. They would become united. But Antiochus would enter Egypt again and lay siege to Alexandria. We read about a guy named Apollos recently in Acts who was from Alexandria. Verse 26, yes, those who eat of the portion of the delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down. So those two brothers in Egypt said they united. They kind of figured out Antiochus. And then Antiochus came to battle them. And what happened, the Egyptian people who had gotten the redistribution of the wealth they turn on their Egyptian kings and they back Antiochus because Antiochus gave them a stimulus check. There ain't nothing new underneath the sun. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. That's scripture. Now, if you can't work, that's different. The edges of the field should be left that those folk can go glean from them, which also implies there needs to be a little bit of work. Verse 27. I'll start ranting. Verse 27. But these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and these shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end, uh, for the end will still be at the appointed time. So even though those two brothers came together, both of them still had an evil intent against one another. All these guys are liars. Go read Psalm 2. It talks about the kings of the earth. It talks about, with a few exceptions, they're liars. <laughs> They want to throw off the counsel of the Lord. These two brothers were not even honest with each other. And eventually the Romans would come in and defeat both of them. Verse 28. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant. He shall do damage and return to his own land. Now Antiochus was returning from Egypt with a great plunder. While he was coming back, did I miss a page? I didn't. No, I'm good. While he's coming back, I don't want to miss a page in this. While he's coming back, there's a rumor in Judah, in Israel, that he had been killed. Jason, who had been excommunicated, um, am I in the right spot here? He had been excommunicated. And 
he would bring a complaint to Antiochus about everything that happened. Um, and basically that would move him to, as it says here, move his heart even all the more against the covenant of God and do damage. And history tells us that right at this point he killed about 40,000 Israelites. Eventually he'd kill 100,000. In the book of Hebrews, when it talks about the hall of faith, you ever wonder who these guys are about? In the New Testament, in Hebrews eleven thirty seven, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destituted, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. You ever read that and wonder, who are those guys? I haven't read about that in the Bible. It was these guys right here. It was these Jews that we're reading about. And they are here because the book of Daniel talked about them. At the appointed time, he shall return and go to the south, but it shall be not like the former or the latter. So again, he'd go back down to Egypt. He would trap the two uh, Ptolemy kings there in Alexandria. Verse 30, he'd get in trouble down there. For ships from Cyrus would come in against him. Here come the Romans. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. He didn't get his way, so he threw a temper tantrum. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy uh, covenant. The Romans basically showed up in Egypt and they said, you know what? You need to get out of here. We're sick of this. They came in to regulate. Rome was coming into power. Antiochus said, well, I need to think about it. You know what the Romans did? They drew a circle around him and they said, you have until you leave this circle to tell us what you want to do. It's where a phrase came to popularity. It's called drawing a line in the sand. Antiochus eventually recognized, I got to give in to this. And he went home full of rage and all the more with a rage against the holy covenant against Israel to try to destroy her. Unfortunately, there were many that had forsook the holy covenant. We talked about this. The book of Maccabees talks about this. They were getting Hellenized. And if they joined Antiochus for his new universal religion, they would be fine. But those who did not, he would go to try to destroy them. If you kept the Sabbath, he would kill you. If your child was circumcised, he would kill you. He tried to burn all of the scrolls of the law and so forth. And there was verse 31, and forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress and they shall take away the daily sacrifice and place there the abomination of desolation. Again, he went and he desecrated the temple. It says he sacrificed a pig and unclean animals on the altar. He put an end to the regular temple sacrifice. He put a statue of Zeus, also known as Jupiter, also known as Satan, there in the temple. But its face was made to resemble, who do you think? Himself. We'll come back to this next week. Because Jesus says when you see the abomination of desolation at the end of the age, run to the hills talking to the Jews. It already had happened. It already happened, but he says it's going to happen again. And in Daniel 9, if you compare the timeline, it says it's going to happen again. This is a foreshadow of what's going to happen. The Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation is going to seek to destroy the Jews. And it says that that time, there'll be a, a time of tribulation and persecution, unlike Israel or the world has ever seen, even more than this. 
There would be a mom walking down the street history, and the Maccabees tells us, and they would check to see if her son was circumcised, and if he was, they would tie the child to her, and they would throw him off a tall building. This was ruthless with all capital letters. It was like Satan unleashed upon the Israelites. Notice 32, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. There were many of the Jews that had already been won over to Antiochus and Hellenism. We talked about this in one of our earlier studies. They built a, a gymnasium right by the temple. And this isn't where you went to work out, do curls and squats. This was a place of perversion. Some of those Jews would even seek to have their circumcision reversed. And everyone says, I don't even know what that is. And I don't know why I don't want to know what that is. And Maccabees chapter 1, verse 43, it says, Many even from Israel gladly adopted his religion, which was universalism, or everything conforming to worship him. They sacrificed idols and profaned the Sabbath. Why? He corrupted them with flattery. He, are you ready for this? He tickled their ears. He told them fables they wanted to hear. They weren't willing to be persecuted for the truth. They said, we want to live for the flesh. Go read 2 Timothy 4 about false teachers in the last days that will come in and invade Christianity, itching people's ears, telling them what they want to hear because they don't want to hear the truth of God's word. That's why our country is where it is right now. Take it to the bank. That's the absolute truth of the matter. But the people, and we're almost done here, but the people who know their God... Do you know your God tonight? The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And this is where we get into the Maccabees. You know what Maccabees means? It means a hammer. A mighty hammer. They would take up arms against Antiochus. It would be a holy war. And in the midst of the persecution, the people of God that knew their God, they got stronger and stronger because of the persecution. Listen, what's going on in our country right now? God wants to use it to make the people who know God stronger and stronger. It shouldn't be making us weaker and weaker, but stronger and stronger. Because difficult times usually demand great exploits. That's what we need today. Not fleshly, man-contrived nonsense, but a people yielded to God who the Holy Spirit is mightily working through. Can we say amen to that? Verse 33, and those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Listen, the high priest understood what was going on. Initially, they didn't want to fight on the Sabbath. Antiochus, because they said, we got to keep the Sabbath. He's against us. Antiochus came and slaughtered many. The high priest taught them it's okay to fight on the Sabbath. Gave them instruction. And yet for many days they fell by sword, by flame. Again, read that in Hebrew, sod and tude. They basically all got out of the city. Uh, they were cap- taken captive. They were plundered. It went on for 2,300 days. Daniel 8 verse 14 prophesied that and it happened exactly as it was prophesied. Verse 34. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. But many shall join them by intrigue. Again, there were mighty warriors in Israel who joined the Maccabees. They basically began to get organized. There were even some who had been given over to Hellenism that even 
were one back for the cause and were almost like secret agents there against Antiochus. And eventually we know what happens. 2,300 days pass from the time he desecrated the temple and then through these mighty exploits of the people of God, they eventually got victory over Antiochus and he was driven away. They went back into the temple. They only had enough oil to burn for one day because there's a holy recipe given in Leviticus for that oil. Can't use any other types. It takes about a week to make it. So they got back into the temple and they lit the holy lamp there and they said, well, let's just light it. And what happened? It should have only lasted one day and it lasted, you guys know this, eight days. It's where we get the Feast of Lights or what we know as Hanukkah. And in the book of John, we see that Jesus celebrated what? The Feast of Life. Lights. This is all biblical. Jesus knew this. Jesus celebrated this. Verse 35, and some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. And again, many fell. Israel was refined. You know what happened out of this? It was the back to the Bible movement. There was a group that got raised up called, you're familiar with them, the Pharisees. And in the days of Jesus, they'd become rigid. But in the days of the Maccabees, the Pharisees were wonderful. They said, we're going to stand in the word of God, come what may. We're going to stand for the truth. And there's a lesson for us in that. Let's make sure that in standing of the truth, it doesn't become dead orthodoxy. But it's being watered by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. It says, until the time of the end, and this is where the prophecy, listen, it time warps to the end of the age, to the coming of the Antichrist, and Lord willing, We'll get into that next week. I can't believe we got through 10 pages. So, you're that happy it's done, huh? (laughs) So am I. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we bless you. We give you praise, God. Lord, I know I fumbled and bumbled up here. I've mixed a few names up. Hopefully God has straightened out. I know the important thing is here, God, that this is the scripture of truth. Oh, Lord, we marvel, God, and we rejoice. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that you held this up as absolute truth, and you are the final authority. God, we want to learn from these things. We want to glean from these things. Let us not be found of people being Hellenized, because the first four letters of Hellenized is hell. Let us be a people that are being Jesus-ized, growing in you, falling more in love with you. Let us be a people set apart for you in these days for great exploits, And Lord, I know those great exploits won't be covered in the news. They probably won't be seen by many. But a mom faithful to pray for her kids every night and walk with Christ, boy, what a great exploit. And men serving in the church, what a great exploit. And women serving in the church just for the glory of God, what a great exploit. Of people taking gospel tracts out to the community and sharing Jesus, what a great exploit. Of people saying, listen, I don't want this wicked in my, wickedness in my house. Get it out of here. We're going to serve the Lord here. What a great exploit. Shine your face on your people. Let us be a people of the word, a people of worship, a people abounding in you. And listen, Christ laid down his life to save us from this fall, fallen world that's being fought over by fallen men. He died on the cross to wash away our sins. And any who call in his name can receive forgiveness 
and new life only found and eternal life only found in Christ. If you haven't called, I'm calling him. He'll meet you where you are tonight. He wants to be your Lord and your Savior. We bless you. We praise you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And we said together, amen. Thank you guys for being patient. We went a little long, but I hope and pray that it was worth it. God bless you. Have a great night in the Lord.